Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. everyone, and welcome back to New Books and Food, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Carrie Tippin, one of the hosts of the channel. Today, we'll be talking to Kara Keeling and Scott Pollard about their new book, Tablelands, Food and Children's Literature, published June 2020 by University of Mississippi Press. Kara Keeling and Scott Pollard are professors of English at Christopher Newport University. Kara is director of the Childhood Studies Minor and teaches courses in children's and young adult literature. Scott teaches courses in world literature and food and literature. And together, they've offered a number of articles on the subject and have also edited the essay collection, Critical Approaches to Food in Children's Literature from Rutledge. Kara and Scott, welcome to the show and congratulations on the new book. Thank you. Thank you very much. Yeah, well, let's start with some background. So tell us a little bit about yourselves and how you came to this intersection of literary and food studies. What drew you each to the study of food and literature? Uh, Kara, let's start with you. Well, it seems appropriate to note here that this project started over a meal. We were (laughs) discussing Marie Sendak's Where the Wild Things Are because I was teaching it in my children's literature class as we were talking over dinner one evening. And it occurred to us that another picture book that we had recently purchased for fun, Henrik Drescher's The Boy Who Raid Around, offered an interesting counterexample of the ways children's negotiate, children negotiate excessive desires, both for food and for power and agency. And so we were talking about that. The Scott loved The Boy Who Ate Around, and it occurred to me, us that maybe there was a paper idea here. And to, to step in, um, that what's, what's interesting to me, what's been interesting to me is that it was supposed to be simply a conference paper that we were going to do. Mm-hmm. And that, that was it. That was, that was supposed to be the end of the project. And two decades and plus later, um, there have been two books and a number of other, uh, many articles <laughs> that we have written out of this project. Um, yeah, you both come from a literary studies background, though. So maybe what what is it that appealed to you about the role of food in literature? Well, partly it was just everywhere that everywhere. Once we began thinking about it, everywhere we looked, there was food and it clearly played significant roles, symbolic roles. And uh, especially in terms of children's literature, we began seeing how it was frequently tied into the issue of child agency. And the, that seemed worth exploring on in many different formats. Mm-hmm. Uh, talk a little bit about your collaboration. You are married. You work together. Um, you collaborate on research, writing, and a little bit in teaching as well. Are there particular interests or strengths that you each bring to the collaboration, Scott? That's a really good question. Um, that collaboration has changed over the years. Um, it used to be that we would all get with the two of us would gather around one's per, one person's desktop computer and we would hand the, the keyboard back and forth uh, wow. to each other um, as we were thinking and coming up with ideas. And then technology changed again. And then we all could sit on a sofa together uh, around one laptop and we could <laughs> pass the laptop back and forth. And now with Google Docs, we can sit in next to one another or we can sit in different rooms or I can be at home and Kara can be at the office um, and we can work remotely. Um, that's been the most, for me, that's the most amazing thing about this <laughs> decade plus kind of odyssey is the, the technological changes that have made working together much, much easier. Yeah. And we've always worked simultaneously on everything we've written. It's not like one chapter gets farmed out to one of us and the another chapter to another, that most of the time, uh, most of the creation of this book 
one of us was typing and the other one was talking and the other or vice versa that, uh, or one of us would, uh, uh, would talk and the other would would write and then would revise what was had been said and then more revisions but usually right on the spot with each other not not separated uh, yeah which is what I think most people think of of collaborated books so you take this chapter I'll take that chapter and that wasn't how we did this at all basically my mother wanted to know which sentences were written by you, Kara? And oh. I had to say, well, all of them and none of them. <laughs> For us, it really is a collaborative process. Um, I also work with another colleague in the department, Margarita Marinova, on a comparative literature project. And we initially started kind of working around a, a computer, you know, a, a desktop computer. But as that project has gone on, um, it's over now, that, that we work very separately and we will we will author different pieces of a chapter that we're writing together. So. Yeah, Ed, that's fascinating. How does the material of this book kind of relate to the courses that you teach, or or the other way around? Did the did the teaching reveal to you texts that would be good for this book project? Oh, absolutely. A number of the texts I suggested were ones that I had come across while teaching and said we should think about doing a chapter on this book or this series of books that the Vietnamese um, chapter on Donna Lies Inside Out and Back Again, that was a book I was already teaching. One Crazy Summer was a book I was already teaching. Scott, I think, had taught Peter Rabbit, but that came actually after the cha- the paper we wrote on Peter Rabbit. So there was there was back and forth between them, but mm-hmm. a lot of it came straight out of me teaching my children some young adult literature courses. Yeah, where, Scott, how does how does food sort of play into the courses that you teach? Whereas for me, it was our project together that then motivated me to create two now three courses on food and literature, mm-hmm. um, some of which have used children's literature. Um, some of which have not, most of which actually have not. Um, and so it was really the project that motivated me to kind of change what I teach. Um, so that's been, that's been an interesting thing too. Um, I taught a course for on corn and, on, on corn and literature um, for a, a, a freshman seminar. Um, I'm teaching this course on food and literature for us as a sophomore seminar. Um, and then I've taught for, for many years our senior seminar in the department on food and literature, um, which has everything from the Odyssey to Peter Rabbit in it. That's exciting. <laughs> so this channel, we often focus on books that are, are cultural histories of foods. Those seem to be really kind of popular in uh, sort of publishing right at the moment. Um, but literary food studies, that's sort of my home as well. And it's a little bit different. So maybe tell us a little bit about what you think, how you define literary food studies, um, or, or whatever term you use for this intersection of food and literary studies, what do you think they bring together that maybe they can't do apart? And, and Scott, I'll turn this question to you. That's a really good question. That's a really complex and hard question. Um, I think what they bring together is that literature is this kind of wonderful illustration of the significance of food in culture. Um, that you can turn, as Kara already said, to any literary text, practically. Um, and find, if not a little bit of food, more often than not, a lot of food. And once you begin looking at food as a cultural signifier, um, you see the richness of the food, not only as a literary signifier, but also as kind of moving out into the culture and seeing how, how how food is used by the culture and how the culture uses food to create meaning. Um, that's kind of the simple answer to that question. (laughs) Yeah. Kara, is there something specific about children's literature that maybe brings additional attention to food and culture? Uh, Why do you think texts for children devote so much attention to food and food ways? I think there's a lot of reasons for that. Part of it is that children's literature is written by adults and it's the basic job of adults to feed children. That's, 
anybody who has spent any time with a kid knows that you've you've got to feed the child. And so their food is this constant presence within child rearing, within children's lives. It's a sensuous pleasure that they enjoy from early childhood onwards. It's a way of expressing individuality. I like this. I don't like that. Mom and dad want me to eat this. I don't want to eat that. It's a way of getting attention. If I don't eat this, mom and dad are going to pay attention trying to get me to eat it. It's a <clears throat> it's a way of um, uh, socializing. Children socialize over food just as adults do in the lunchroom, at school, snacks together after school. It is this constant presence in children's lives. So it gets reflected in the literature that uh, it's a way of of showing the autonomy of uh, that children accrue as they get older. It's a way of showing how children are socialized into proper behaviors because manners at the table are one of the central ways in which we socialize children. Manners may differ from culture to culture, but there are always manners centered around the table. Uh, the table is the place where children learn to be properly mannered social beings. Can you bring this up in the introduction a little bit too, that, that children's literature is sort of by nature instructional or is intended to be instructive in some ways. Uh, and that, for instance, in the next chapter about cookbooks, these are instructional texts as well. Is there something maybe about that instructional nature that makes food and children's literature a good pair? Yeah, this goes back to the 18th century and the beginnings of children's literature in Britain, at any rate, that John Newberry, for whom the Newberry Award is named, advertised his first children's books as intended to delight and instruct. And that sense of instruction has always been there, that by reading, children learn about the world. And so by reading, they're going to learn about how to be human, how to be, um, how to be, how to be a, um, a proper person. I'm not expressing mm -hmm. this very well. <laughs> no, I understand, right? Like how to be a fully formed contributing member of the family of the culture that you find yourself in too. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> Scott, I'll, I'll turn this one to you first. Uh, in, the introduction, in the introduction, you talk about how you're revisiting some texts or revisiting some ideas that you've written about before right. uh, with a little bit of a new perspective. So talk a little bit about those changes. What, what's changed in your thinking uh, between your last book and this one? Actually, let me go back a bit further to our, to our first articles. Mm -hmm. um, when we started... We, be, we very much kind of saw food as simply kind of having a symbolic importance. So it, it, it functioned as a literary symbol. Whether we were talking about Sendak or Drescher or Peter Rabbit, um, it was always about food as a literary symbol. Um, we didn't, we didn't, we, 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 we kind of moved into the margins of looking at it as a, as a cultural product, um, as a social product, but mostly as a literary symbol. Then when we, in, in 2008, when we published the, the collection, um, the kind of amazing moment there for us was that all of these writers who were writing about food brought so many different perspectives to their, their, their works and their topics. And suddenly the whole notion of food is simply a, a literary symbol kind of went out the window. Um, and we spent the last decade more than that now, um, kind of exploring the, the, the amazing complexity of food as a cultural, social, and historical object in which literary symbolism is just one piece of a larger complex of meaning. Um, and what, one of the results of that is that, this is, this is, well, that initially our research was pretty simple and straightforward. 
because we were just looking at literary research. Mm-hmm. But yeah, with this last book, we were researching in all sorts of fields in the last decade, all sorts mm-hmm. of fields in all sorts of ways, um, history, philosophy, um, sociology. It was amazing, um, as well as food studies. Um, it was it was amazing. Um, it was the, the the complexity of the research, just you know, trouble. Yeah. Yeah, there's an interdisciplinarity that necessarily occurs when you start thinking about food in this way. Yeah. Yeah, Kara, would you like to add anything to that? Yeah, the research wound up taking us places we had never really expected to go, that we had to learn so much about so many different cultural backgrounds, just to start with. You know, the final chapter on Fenna Lies Inside Out and Back Again, uh, we had to look up immigration uh, studies and refugee studies and Vietnamese studies and Vietnamese di- diaspora studies and just so many intersections of different approaches, all the having bearing on uh, foods and and manners and how it's consumed and what it means. It's just an extraordinarily stimulating process. Well, and that's a good uh, kind of segue to my next question, which is about sort of the diversity of primary texts that you're interested in. So not only are we intersecting uh, in these secondary fields, but the the texts that you've chosen, some of them are very familiar, like Winnie the Pooh, Peter Rabbit, Little House on the Prairie, uh, Disney's Ratatouille. Um, but you also introduced me to some texts that were very new to me, like the Wheatsy Bat series and um, Alice Waters' cookbook or books with her daughter Fanny. These I, I didn't really know that those existed. So, talk a little bit about the the primary texts that you chose, and and what do you think brings them together? Kara, how about you take that one first? Well, we wanted t- Tablelands to be a broad survey. It can't be exhaustive. That's just impossible. Uh, there's too much children's literature out there, too much food in it. So we wanted to try to be representative in a number of ways and uh, expansive at the same time. So we organized the chapters in chronological order, more or less. We started with a chapter on cookbooks that actually does span a long period of time, but then the subsequent chapters are based on on particular writers, and those are organized in in roughly chronological order. And so we wanted to look at the Anglo-American tradition of children's literature, but we also wanted to show how that has expanded in diversity over the decades. And so we've got representations of Native American, Jewish American, African American, immigrant Vietnamese cultures. We've got regionalism. We also Mm -hmm. wanted to try to have a variety of genres. So we have realism and fantasy and cookbooks and picture books and chapter books and young adult novels and film. And all of this is designed to show the comprehensive nature of the topic. It's everywhere. Yeah, the the first chapter interested me most, partly because of my own interest in the study of cookbooks uh, as rhetorical and literary texts. So you look at three eras of cookbooks there that are aimed specifically at children um, as the audience who are learning to cook. Um, Talk about some of the conclusions you came to in that chapter, Kara. What did you discover about this unique subgenre of cookbooks? We were really interested to see how they changed over time. So we looked at uh, at cookbooks from the late 19th and early 20th centuries. And the technology of cooking was very different back then, particularly that 19th century textbook when you have stoves that are wood-fired and the children had to learn literally how to cook with fire. and how to deal with heat sources that weren't weren't even that that makes a tremendous difference when you're cooking bread for instance and so there were very substantial skills involved and we had cookbooks about girls you're learning these at 
relatively young ages and writing their own recipe books and uh, writing down the recipes as they got them. So the children were very active. They had a uh, large part in it. Uh, autonomy is often stressed in these early cookbooks that the the children want to learn how to cook with without mother's help. Um, they want to become cooks in their own right. And then in the mid-century, we saw how Children's cookbooks reflected a larger shift in American cooking for adults as well as uh, industrialized foods, prepackaged foods, mixes, uh, frozen foods, all these things came on, things that were designed to be labor-saving in the kitchen, but wind up meaning that kids don't actually learn how to cook for themselves. They tend to be to model cooking as play rather than as cooking as household help. And then we're finding in the late 20th, early 21st century, a shift back to children's autonomy, particularly in the work of Alice Waters and um, uh, Molly Katzen and um, um, books that want to develop genuine skills in, uh, in, in children, uh, although also always with the proviso that parents are watching to make sure that children are safe. Yeah, I was really interested in those mid 20th century cookbooks that they they never really seem to live up to our expectations about good food. I think both the adult cookbooks that are full of jello and the children's that are just easy bake ovens, right? Um, you argue pretty convincingly to me in this middle period that cookbooks take agency away from children and it just sort of makes their life this unserious play instead of welcoming them into part of the, the community and the family. Uh, that was surprising to me that that focus on pleasure might be detrimental to their self-efficacy. So Scott, I, I would love to hear your kind of maybe explain that a little bit better for our readers um, and, and what's sort of the argument behind that. There, there are two kind of trends in, 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 the, in the post-war period. One is that that sense of disempowerment that you can that people can make food out of boxes and frozen boxes and cans um, and don't need the kitchen skills anymore, and that's in the adult cookbooks as well as in the children's cookbooks. But there's also, I mean, this is when Julia Child is is is, is learning French cooking in, in in France, and she comes back and and, and in the early '60s begins, um, um, you know, the P, her PBS show. And so there is another trend there that tries to maintain um, the skills and power of cooking. Um, so it, it's 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 a difficult it's a difficult period because on the one hand, yes, the, the the cooking skills are maintained in some ways, but but corporate America wants to kind of take those skills away um, <laughs> at the same time. So it's 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 a hard one to kind of navigate. Um, yeah, and I think our sort of initial instinct is that children should play and children should experience food as pleasure, uh, but maybe not in this particular way, that it's kind of a, a disempowering play. Except for the, the, the book on boys cooking that we talked about. Right. Which is about um, a, a, a family of men because the, because the, the mother has passed away um, and, and then the father and the boys you know, learn how to cook. And he teaches them how to cook in the house and outside the house. And it is, it has a different feel to it because it is about empowerment mm. um, rather than the other, the other cookbooks we were looking at, which really aren't. It's really about kind of simple play. Yeah. The next chapter introduces a conflict that, that permeates children's literature and comes up often in the book. And that is human-like animals who are looking for food or who are in danger of being eaten, um, either by people or by other animals. Uh, and your argument in that chapter is that Beatrix Potter's tales, including that very familiar Peter Rabbit, uh, are really about these class tensions uh, or the role of food in symbolizing class status in the real adult world, that historical world of English society. Uh, so Scott, tell us a little bit more about that. What are some of those markers of class status and civility in those stories? Um, and what's significant about having animals play those roles? Well, the simple answer to that, that last question is that the animals kind of stand in for the children. 
Um, so that so the Beatrix Pottery, Potter's audience as children see the animals as themselves. Um, in terms of class, there's there's again it's always a really complex question. Um, you have characters that um, in Samuel Whiskers and the Roly Poly Pudding that we talked about that are kind of living in in the walls and between floors and don't have access to cooking skills. They have cooking skills, but don't have access to kitchens and such. And so they have to steal their way, you know, into the other animal's kitchen in order to be able to make a pudding. Um, They aspire to be middle class, but they don't have the means, let's say that way. Um, and and at, at the end of, of Sammy Whiskers, you know, Sammy Whiskers and his wife don't get what they want. They don't they don't get to eat Tom Kitten as, as a pudding, um, which is just as well. <laughs> um, but what we discovered is that there was all this research out there, it's social work research, that looked at how the how social work, how, sociolo- how sociologists were trying to serve the poorer class of, of, of Londoners who were working in factories and living in, in awful conditions. Um, and that there was an interesting parallel between kind of how social workers in London were trying to deal with how these these poor folks ate and how a character like like Samuel Whiskers and his wife were trying to eat. So yeah, that the the fictional characters were sort of embodying those lessons. Yeah. Yeah, and again when we were doing the research we had no idea that we were going to encounter um that that there was there was work out there in social social work theory and in sociology and in historical in historical work on sociology that talked about poverty in London and how social work and sociology kind of or sociologists were trying to deal with poverty in London. So but that, that's yeah. how we have the class markers. <laughs> All right. So another group of human like animals who are navigating society appear in the next chapter on Winnie the Pooh. Uh, there you argue that food plays an important role in forming community uh, and that po- Pooh's constant search for food and companionship and poetry motivates most of the plot of the books. Um, so, Kara, how does Honey help Pooh find his identity as a poet? Well, Pooh is famous for his desire for honey and for the sweet, for uh, his insatiable desire to eat. But we noticed that his... Uh, his his arc usually took him out of his home, and uh, the search for food often involved his composition of poetry, and that he uh, he goes to a to to his friends to eat with them, and um, and to do, and that is uh, often what inspires his poetry as well, that he composes his uh, big epic poems at the climax of each um, story. And the uh, banquets are, are, are places where he, he does that. Yeah, so food, companionship, poetry, these are all really deeply intertwined and almost the same thing. Yes, the, their pleasures... And one of the ways we put it in this chapter was that poetry and food are both pleasures of the mouth mm-hmm. and that uh, the, 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 the pleasure, the stimulation of eating leads to the pleasure of, of the poetry as well. Mm-hmm. If I can step in. Please. What's, what's interesting here for me is that who begins wanting to be the hero. Right? He, want, he wants to be the hero of the epic tale. Um, but it's through the honey and the poetry that he discovers his role as poet. Um, finally giving, giving over the hero role to Piglet, um, which he is, which he is, he's, he's had to struggle with because he wants to be the hero, but he can't be both the hero and the poet. 
Mm. He can be the bard. And that's kind of what he learns over the course of, of the two books. He learns to be the bard. And honey is central to that learning process. Yeah, and again, that feast is the central place where the bard does his work. Yes. Right. Mm. Apu is just like in the Odyssey. <laughs> for the coming for the coming semester for my class <laughs> that's great like the odyssey hey it's kaylee cuoco for priceline ready to go to your happy place for a happy price well why didn't you say so just download the priceline app right now and save up to 60 percent on hotels so whether it's cousin kevin's kazoo concert in kansas city go kevin or becky's bachelorette bash in bermuda you never have to miss a trip ever again so download the priceline app today your savings are waiting Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. <laughs> uh, well, the next chapter turns to more realistic fiction, uh, and this time a series of novels from Laura Ingalls Wilder and then Louise Erdrich. Uh, the Little House on the Prairie books tell one story of white pioneers and settlers uh, who are repeating their Euro-American foodways in the West, uh, but you argue that Erdrich's Birchbark series is purposefully talking back to those books, reinscribing indigenous foodways into that place, the American West. Um, so tell us a little bit about those key differences in those contrasting foodways, maybe Scott. Um, and then Kara, what you think is the significance of that counter narrative? Well, for the there are two very different sets of foodways, right? One is 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 European based. And that's what um, the Ingalls family takes with them um, in their pioneering out to the West. Um, part of Manifest Destiny, part of the idea that that it is it is it is, it is the European settlers East that moves West that make you know American civilization possible. And so everything kind of connects back to European foodways, European styles of cooking. Um, repeating European foodways and style of cooking, um, and what we get with with Erdrich is, in a sense, the exact opposite. Right? What she tries to do, um, and what's really fascinating in the research is that the, the new research that's out, that's out there on Native American cuisines and and and, and such, is that she tries to show how um, the the Lakota. Um, are and then how her family I'm gonna I'm forgetting the name of the main character um, how they kind of work from the land through their own their own cooking techniques to kind of claim their place in the land um, and that's the fundamental difference um, that one is is importing a cooking tradition from from Europe and the other is 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 grounding their cooking tradition in the land. Um, and so that by the end of the still yet unfinished series by, by Erdrich, they are in a place where their initial, how can I say it? Their initial set of, of cooking skills and abilities um, are no longer applicable because they've gone from lake and forest to plains. So they're having to relearn kind of how to cook and how to think about themselves um, as cooking people. Yeah, Kara, what's some of that evidence of, of counter-narrative, of that pers- uh, purposeful intertextuality? And, and what do you think is the significance of, of having that separate narrative? Well, part of what the Ingalls family does is, especially when they move out onto the plains, is they transform the environment that they live in. Uh, in the big woods, they chop down the trees in the... Um, in Kansas and Minnesota and South Dakota, they break sod, they transform the prairie for agricultural purposes. And they consider the, it's, it's, it's made clear in the mouths of the most racist character in, um, in Little House on the Prairie that the European Americans tend to think that the only purpose for the land is for agriculture. And they don't see the ways that the Indians use the land as actual land use. That's partly why they um, they can't understand the kinds of communal land practices that the Native Americans have. That you've got 
completely fundamental clashes in ways of thinking and ways of understanding the land and land use. And the, the Ojibwa have lived in their part of um, Minnesota, Southern Canada, uh, around Lake Superior for generations. And they have learned how to use what the land provides and to follow its seasons. And they have, we, we focus in our discussion about particular cultivation and gathering practices of wild rice, maple syrup, berrying, and how those are, are seasonally tied and how they affect the way the family organizes its activities throughout the year. And the European uh, method is much more about dominating the land and making it do what the European family, the Ingalls, wants it to do. They don't succeed very well mm-hmm. a lot of the time. Uh, the, uh, the, the, it's, it's so much more of a struggle for the Ingalls family to try to make their living from the land than it is for the uh, Ojibwa family. I don't mean that it's not difficult for them, but they have a, a, a much deeper understanding. And one of the ways we end that chapter is discussing how food sovereignty is still a major Ojibwa and as well as other tribal nations um, um, argument that they want to have the food sovereignty. They want to be able to hunt and gather, particularly gather in ways that um, their ancestral peoples did, that that's fundamental to cultural identity. Yeah. And interestingly, taking that the children as the audience and that idea of instructive, um, the nature of the genre, if Little House on the Prairie is the only narrative that stands in children's literature, then we can't move forward on those issues, perhaps. And there's just no other way of thinking about them because yeah. that's the way that the Ingalls family did it, so that's the right way. And it, Wilder is a f- wildly f- popular novelist that uh, people still read her books. They Girls dress up as Laura Ingalls' uh, does in the books they want to recreate the kinds of things that young Laura does there's a Laura Ingalls Wilder cookbook so that young girls and uh, primarily girls boys too but primarily girls can learn to cook the sorts of dishes that are 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 out there and I think that Erdrich really wants to talk back to that she says that explicitly in some interviews that we quote that she she enjoyed the Wilder books, but what she loved was the sausages, and that she wanted to catch that capture that kind of uh, domestic joy in eating together, that uh, and uh, making food that the uh, that Wilder's books capture so well. Yeah. yeah, Scott, was there something you wanted to add? I just wanted to add that one of the things we discovered as we were doing the research, and this is how we ended this, this chapter, is that there's also right now this really kind of fascinating renaissance in Native American cuisines. Um, in, 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 there's, there's this amazing quote called, called by, by Sean Sherman called um, The Sous Chef, um, which is a great title for a cookbook. Um, the pun is magnificent. The pun is magnificent, <laughs> yes. And and it's and it's very much a kind of gathering kind of cookbook. Um, it I've tried cooking out of it a few times, but it really does require you to go out into the world and forage around and find things. Um, but this is a kind of cooking that's become a cooking style um, that's no longer that's not European that is becoming important in in the United States. It was interesting that that as our work on 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 Erdrich or Erdrich, um, you know, developed, that we found this interesting parallel to how Native American cuisines are are developing and, and and growing right now. Yeah, the 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 book really looks at a wide variety of genres. We've already sort of alluded to that. 
uh, including the next chapter, which is about Maurice Sindak's picture book, In the Night Kitchen. Uh, So in this chapter, you decode some of the biographical clues uh, that are in the artwork to discuss some of the less obvious ways uh, that Sindak Sindak is exploring uh, 1930s Jewish food waves and enclaves in Brooklyn, uh, especially the emphasis on baking. So what are some of the most interesting details that might not be immediately apparent to casual readers who might be familiar with In the Night Kitchen? Uh, Kara, I'll turn that over to you. Well, one of the things that struck us was the the cityscape that is made out of food. And we eventually linked this up with programmatic architecture in the United States. You know, those restaurants that sell hot dogs that are shaped like hot dogs, or one that is near my parents' house in Florida that is an ice cream store that's shaped like an ice cream cone. And Sendak uses the, uh, the, the, the kitchen implements and and uh and foods that uh, he remembers from his childhood as a um, child in New York City uh, uh, uh Brook- in Brooklyn in the 1930s and turns them into this magnificent kind of dreamscape but i think one of the reasons we buy into it is that we're we know buildings that look like food and that are used as uh, ways of attracting people to eat food. And that was just not something I'd ever really thought about until we started researching the book. Uh, but there's also, Sendak has given a lot of interviews about his work and particularly about Night Kitchen and how he sees it as an homage to the um, the wonderful foods of his, his childhood. And um, uh, he remembered going from Brooklyn into Manhattan, which was this place of incredibly exotic foods for him, exotic foods that were in fact, actually very American foods, but very different from the Jewish household in which he was growing up. And, uh, and he he discusses his memories of the World's Fair and the bakers that uh, that he saw. He had this very particular memory of standing and waving to the uh, the bakers in one section of the fair, and they those are the ones that find their way into the three bakers of in the night kitchen. Yes. Yeah, so uh, again, more evidence of this diversity in the book. After that picture book you fo- that's focusing on a very young child, the next chapter is a trilogy uh, of novels that, again, were new to me, the Wheatsy Bat novels, uh, dramatically different, right? From 1930s Brooklyn to uh, punk rock LA, <laughs> the yeah. audience seems more mature. The themes seem more mature, maybe an older adult, young, uh, an older young adult audience. Um, how does food establish a sense of place and identity in those novels, Scott? Well, um, Francesca Leoblanc kind of uses food from the very beginning to the very end to help establish what it means to be in Los Angeles, in particular to be in Laurel Canyon and Hollywood. Um, there is there is the food they eat at the house. There is the restaurants they go to visit when they when they leave the house. Um, and what, for for me, what it does is kind of establish. LA as this kind of really kind of fascinating kind of capital of food, um, which then we found in the research and in, in particular in um, the food writer, Jonathan Gold, who unfortunately has passed on um, and his explorations of, of LA food. Um, and that what his work very much kind of co- seemed to coincide with, her explorations of food in the Wheatsy Bat series. Um, his explorations were all about discovering LA through the food, and the Wheatsy Bat series seems to be all about discovering LA through the food. Um, and so that's that's the kind of the basics that we that we came to with that series. Um, mm-hmm. And you get it, and and for me because I'm from California and went to, went to school in, in 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 Southern California, it's it's very nostalgic. And and it was for her too because she wrote that she wrote the first Wheatsy Bat the first book uh, while she was at Berkeley um, as this kind of love letter to LA 
because she was so nostalgic for it. Um, and it was through the food over and over again in the novels, in that novel and in the rest of them, that she kind of grounds her nostalgia. Yeah, say a little bit more about the sort of countercultural vegetarian aspects of the food in the novel as well. Um, that that is clearly kind of how she, how she defines LA cuisine. It's not how Jonathan Gold defines LA cuisine, but it's how she defines it. And so when characters, if you will, go off the vegetarian vegan diet to eat meat, it's always a problem. They always lose themselves. Um, in the last in the last novel, when the main character is in New York, um, looking for herself, <clears throat> that she ends up eating meat, and it and she has to be rescued. So it's always the the the, the vegan, the vegetarian, the macrobiotic foods, which restore people's health and restore people's being and people's identity and characters' identity. Um, meat is always meat and sweets. Sweets are also bad. Um, you know, high fructose corn syrup, Coke is also bad. Um, but anything that is, that is, that is healthy and healthful and organic is, is very much about people discovering or characters discovering themselves in a good way. Yeah. Uh, the next chapter on Ratatouille uh, struck me as particularly an accessible entry point for undergraduate students to literary food studies. Um, I teach a class on food and American identity, and I'm always looking for some sort of scholarship that will do the work of literary analysis um, through food studies that is something students already know, they're already familiar with, and then they can sort of really watch that academic and theoretical rigor applied to something that that they know. So at, at 21 pages, I, that chapter is, is gold. I'm going to assign it as soon as I get back. I'm in fall. So, <laughs> the, the central question of that chapter has to do with Remy the rat's temporary and incomplete acceptance into the human world. Uh, so even though the movie seems to break down human and animal dichotomies uh, in the end, that separation of human and rats is really reinforced rather than undermined. Um, so Kara, I'll start with you. What do you think is significant about that, uh, sort of the ending, that ambivalence towards animals? Well, I remember when I first watched the film, I actually had a, a real reaction to rats in the kitchen. (laughs) 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 That, um, that I was essentially responding to the kind of vermin signifier that we discuss in the chapter. And, um, then what became alarming as we began thinking about it was that at the end, the, the, the film seems to create this happy ending in which the rats have access to beautifully cooked food from Remy that he has found a place in, in the kitchen. And that, uh, so the, there is this sort of vision of community at the end, but then when you think about it, um, the, they're excluded from, they're, they're in the small bistro. They're excluded from the uh, great hierarchical haute cuisine institution of French food. And more disturbingly, the rats themselves are kept separate from the other diners. That if we're supposed to be reading the rats as coming into equality, with uh, as Remy as uh, uh, finding his arc as 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 chef, as hero, um, that winds up being subverted at the end. That yes, he does get to be a chef in this little restaurant, but uh, and he gets to serve both his family and uh, human customers. But the rats live in the in the uh, in the attic, and they are separate from the humans. And there is a real question about how equal that makes them at the end of the book or at the, at the end of the film, I think. Yeah. Scott, does, did you want to add something to that as well? It, the one thing that I kept thinking about as we were talking about this, as we were writing about it, um, is that what the filmmakers do is create this kind of, if you will, a kind of bubble of intersectionality mm-hmm. where 
the human and the rat can come together and it works for a little bit. But what they can't do is imagine beyond that bubble. Um, the, the comparison that I make is to, in, in Cervantes' Don Quixote, um, when, when Don Quixote is in the mountains in the, in the first book, he encounters a woman um, who wants to be a shepherdess and does not want to be um, does not want to be courted, does not want to marry any man. She has all these men who are chasing after her, you know, in in the mountains. And she makes her case to them. They, of course, ignore her case. And she disappears to join the other shepherdesses deep in the mountains. Um, and what Cervantes can't do at that moment is say, okay, I'm now going to, you know, take my narrative lens and and look at this community of women community of, of shepherdesses living off alone by themselves, fully capable of living off alone and by themselves with their sheep. Instead, he just kind of ends it. But he offered, she offers this kind of ideal, this ideal setting of women off by themselves, um, living on their own as shepherdesses. But he can't quite imagine that. And that's what I think about the end of Ratatouille. The filmmakers want to imagine intersectionality between rats and humans and they can they can they can conceive of it for a moment but can't see it beyond that moment and if we're supposed to see the rats as representing the the outsider the other then what does this mean at the end of the film when the rats and the other remain otherized remain separated remain segregated yeah, and I think I remember in that chapter you talk about how often rats and mice are the the main characters of children's, you know, literature mm-hmm. and where it's sort of meant to identify ourselves as children with the mice. Uh, but it definitely doesn't finish. <laughs> it doesn't finish working in this metaphor here. No. Yeah. Uh, yeah, so... Can I ask you one more question about animals, right? Taken together, there's so many of these texts that analyze that human uh, and children's relationship to animals. Uh, the next chapter, which we'll talk about in a minute, uh, again, operates on tensions around milk and eggs uh, and a character who eschews meat. So before we get there, like, what do you think are some of those threads to draw together about animals and humanity and their relationship to and with each other? Uh, Scott, I'll let you take that one. That that is always inevitably complex. That it, it'd be nice to simply say, "All right, anim- in children's literature, animals always represent children," and there's a simple narrative arc in which X, Y, and Z happens, and everything ends up happily in the end. Um, instead, you know what we what we saw in in Beatrix Potter, what we see in Ratatouille, um, is that the relationships are amazingly complex. And can't be kind of simply undone um, to to create a happy ending. Um, there's always going to be problems. There are always going to be difficulties. Um, and so, I think that's kind of one of the major lessons that you can take from kind of the animal human kind of connection there. Um, mm-hmm. That it's not just simple cute animals. That 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 connection is always going to produce a lot of really interesting thought and kind of complex issues to think through. Yeah. The rest of that chapter on the trilogy of novels from Williams Garcia uh, addresses the main character's journey to understanding this continuum of performances of womanhood, of motherhood and blackness. And those are all kind of negotiated through food. Uh, It was a lot in this chapter, (laughs) but for listeners, maybe start with that part, describing those three kind of place-based models of womanhood um, and the relationships that the main character absorbs across those three novels. Uh, Kara, I'll turn that one to you. That was a really hard chapter to write because we eventually figured out that we had to talk about the books in the opposite order, that it's a trilogy and we start with the last book and then move to the middle book and then move to the first book. But this is partly because the food ways in the books, the the main character, as she ages, she seems to go back into... Uh, back into time from the most radical moment where she's located at the, at the beginning of the first uh, or in the first book 
through other, other stages. So we wound up talking about the, the third of the novels, What Gone Crazy in Alabama first, because it represents the Southern food ways that her grandmother has instilled in, uh, in, in her and um, uh, the appreciation for slow cooking uh, for the foods that are based um, in the land that, that come right off the farm. And um, with all the kinds of, of tensions in, in that novel that reflect the place that African-Americans had in the American South uh, in the Jim Crow era. And then the, uh, so the, the, the older women, the great mentors in that, in that book are the ones who know the traditions at, that Delphine, the protagonist, is beginning to absorb uh, as a young, a young black girl coming in, into the early stages of young womanhood. And then the second novel, PSB 11, there is nowhere near as much food in that book and we didn't spend as much time on it. But what there is seems to suggest the kinds of urban foods of the post-war era that um, the girl's new stepmother is a cook who who knows the those industrialized foods, the... Um, um, that's very different from what Delphine knows from her, her grandmother who has gone back to the South. Um, there's takeout food. They order pizzas that it's, it's a very convenience food based kind of cuisine. And then the first book, the final one we tackle in the chapter is when the girls go to visit their mother in California, um, whom they have not seen for many years. Uh, and has been estranged. And she is involved with the Black Panthers, and her kitchen has been transformed from a place to make food into a place to make art. And Delphine brings food back into the kitchen that she cooks for her little sisters and for her mother, too. And her, her mother sends her to, and her sisters, to the Black Panthers, um, every morning for breakfast. And we did a lot of research on the breakfast program that the Panthers started. And that's not what a lot of people think of when they think of the Black Panthers, but it is in fact one of their most important and enduring legacies. Scott, did you want to add anything? What I would add to that is that, again, food is is a, is a measure of empowerment that in the third novel, which is all about you know, African-American Southern foodways, food is a very powerful kind of cultural, not just symbol, but, but powerfully econo- powerful economically for, for the family. Um, and yet in the first novel, where all those traditions have been lost, because now this is urban food, urban fast food, urban convenience food um, in Oakland, that the Black Panthers still are using food as a means of empowerment to feed children and give them the the fuel they need for the rest of the day so that they can do better in school. Um, One of the things the Black Panthers did with that breakfast program is basically get the city's um, school districts in in California and then I I think across the nation into into offering breakfast programs for for students to give them the fuel that they need to make it through the day um so it's interesting whether you're talking about you know the the, the food in the deep south or food in new york or food in oakland and they're very different kinds of food and yet rita williams garcia always uses food here as a means of empowerment yeah, and they're not necessarily like vilified against one another, right? No. They all kind of come out value neutral. Yeah, exactly, exactly. The final chapter examines the the story of a family of Vietnamese refugees in America, and you suggest that the author Tana Lai is like Erdrich, writing against um, this established representation of refugee experiences, especially those written by non Vietnamese authors for non Vietnamese audiences. 
so Scott, how does Lai's book revise and refute what you call the gratitude narrative that's expected of refugees? Basically, again, this is, this is the issue of, of empowerment. And what we see is that as the family moves from Vietnam to Thailand, where was the Philippines? I forget, sorry, um, to the U.S. and to, and to Alabama, um, is that they find ways in which to establish their own culture again and again through food that rather than simply capitulating and being grateful for um, American American chicken, which tastes like rubber and, and it has the texture of rubber, um, they figure out ways in which they can remake, reappropriate, rethink um, Vietnamese cuisine within an American context. And when we were doing the research into into Vietnamese American cookbook authors, that's exactly kind of how they talked about coming to the United States, being grateful for 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 being saved from 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 death and destruction, but then using this space in the U.S. to rethink, reappropriate, and and make Vietnamese identity and food a fundamental part of how they became. American, I'll say it that way. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I'll add that one of the things I love about the book is how it defamiliarizes American food through the protagonist's eyes. We see how incredibly strange it is to her. And I think that that's something that could have a powerful effect on children reading the book who take their own cuisine for granted and to see that it is not ordinary, it is not usual, it's not standard to other people. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so kind of to wrap up, what do you think are the most important takeaways from this project, Kara? I think a lot of it comes uh, down to what Scott was saying, that f- food and children's literature is very much about empowerment and agency and autonomy and ways of gaining that um, for protagonists who are looking to become more powerful. Children live in a disempowered state most of their lives, that they are dependent and reliant. And children's literature in general is a kind of dream of autonomy and that food becomes a way of enabling that, of of creating that for themselves in many cases. Yeah, Scott, what do you think? The issue for me is that we go back to our initial conversation that that perhaps we can look at cookbooks as simply being instructional, or we can look at children's literature as simply being instructional. But you know what we what we've discovered through our research is that's and and, and all the, these readings is that it's not that it is really explorational. It is really about empowerment. It's about saying where am I in the world and how do I find a place in it and okay so there's food over here and i can use food in these really interesting ways to to you know make my stake in the world um and whether that's you know even the 19th century cookbooks where it's it is instructional but these children find power through that instruction or to get go back to the alice waters and and molly Catson cookbooks it's about how kids use food to find themselves and find their position and place in the world. And I think that's what everything kind of everything we looked at in this book is about that. Yeah, well said. Uh, what project are you working on next, Kara? Well, Scott and I have just finished a, another joint project, although not on food, it is on children's literature. It's on disability and the, the Velveteen Rabbit for a centenary study on the Velveteen Rabbit. And I'll let Scott say a bit more about that, and then uh, we can each talk about our independent projects. Yeah, please. Um, I've done on and off for, for a couple of decades scholarship on, on disability studies, and it's mostly been off rather than on. Um, <laughs> but I, I 
edited a special anthology of the Children's Literature Association Quarterly in 2013 on disability studies in children's literature. And our friend Lisa Rofrostina, who is editing this volume, um, was looking at her her contributors and thought that that we needed that she needed a disability studies approach for the Velveteen Rabbit. And so I spent a lot of time um, since the shutdown, um, <laughs> the shutdown, rereading and reacquainting myself with disability studies scholarship. Um, and that's been a really kind of interesting process because it's been a while since I've read any of it. Um, and and so it's, but that's it's always a learning process for me. Um, I mean, I've, I was trained as a Latin American, a Latin Americanist and a comparatist. Um, and then find my way with Kara into children's literature. And it's always, for me, a learning process, this, this, this process of discovery. And so when, when we got this offer to do this disability studies project, I said, sure. Um, and, and, have, and have kind of loved the results. It's been a lot yeah. of fun. <laughs> yeah, how about those independent projects, Kara? I'm working currently on a project on two young adult novels and uh, using Kristeva to discuss abjection within them. So instead of looking at what goes into the body, I'm going to be looking at what comes out. Oh, that's exciting. I have a side interest in vomit as well. (laughs) (laughs) I always bring that up to my student in exactly that way, and it always gets a really good laugh. (laughs) That's great. Uh, Scott, what else is working? What else are you working on? Um, I have another project that I've worked on for a while is on on Don Quixote. Um, And with my colleague, Margarita Marinova, she did a translation of a Russian version of Don Quixote by the novelist Mikhail Bulgakov. And that got us in contact with another, a Spanish professor um, at Marshall University um, who is also Russian and wanted us to do some work for him. And so we've done some work for him and he's, he's really amazingly productive. Um, <laughs> and, and so he contacted us again um, at the beginning of this year because he's got another book project on, on international versions of Don Quixote. And so Margarita is writing one thing for him and I've decided to write, uh, to go back to an earlier project that, be, that I began in the, in the late 90s on 18th century English versions of Don Quixote. Wow. <laughs> that's oh, great. Children's, children's versions. Children's yeah, so that's children's they, aren't they the children's versions of Don Quixote? Sorry, Excellent. they are the children's versions of Don Quixote. Oh, that's great. Okay, good. Full circle. (laughs) Well, today we've been talking with Kara Keeling and Scott Pollard about their new book, Table Lands, Food and Children's Literature, uh, published June 2020 by University of Mississippi Press. Kara and Scott, it has been an absolute delight talking to you today. Thank you for being with us. It's been wonderful to talk to you. Thank you. Thanks. Thanks for listening. 